I'm going to let you be seated, and uh, Daniel, you can just leave the uh, scripture there on the screens. I do want to uh, acknowledge that today is Christ the King, or Reign of Christ Sunday. It is the last Sunday of the Christian year. Uh, Next Sunday is the equivalent of New Year's for us on the Christian calendar with the first Sunday of Advent. But it's on this day that we celebrate the final judgment of Christ uh, when He returns, His victory uh, once and for all over the powers of darkness. And He will bring justice, the Scripture says, uh, to the earth uh, for those that are persecuted, the poor, the powerless, and the oppressed. And here in Matthew chapter 5, which I'm going to read from in just a few moments, beginning with verse 31, we find a continuation of of the final teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew that begins in chapter 23, 24, and 25. And much of it deals with the last days, with eschatology, with end times. And in chapter 25, he talks about... uh, being ready for when the king returns with this parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids. And then he tells another parable about being faithful until the king comes, which is the parable of the talents. And then we come to what is often labeled in your Bible as the judgment of the nations. Now it's not really a parable like the other two, but it's more like an apocalyptic vision of the future, what is coming When the Son of Man returns. And it emphasizes the importance of being kind and generous to the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Listen now to God's word from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 36. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in His presence and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at His right hand and the goats at His left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed Me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord... When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, 
When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray in these next moments that we would have open hearts and minds to your word. Uh, This is a difficult passage. It's convicting. It's troubling. It calls into question uh, the way that we live our lives, and especially this time of the year uh, in the great commercial holiday of America, Christmas. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come and bring conviction to our lives and then empower us to make changes to do the deeds that Jesus describes for us here in Matthew 25, to be a people of compassionate love who give our lives away in service to the kingdom and the king. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The 13 American colonies, the British called them British colonies, no doubt, declared their independence from King George III and the British monarchy 243 years ago. The early colonists did not want a king, especially a king like George. They rebelled against the idea that someone could rule over others based on uh, his lineage uh, or his family tree. The Declaration of Independence basically says, we the people have a right to choose those who will lead us. And even though we live in a democracy today, thanks to our forefathers and foremothers uh, of 243 years ago, um, we are not a kingdom, we don't have a king. The fact is that Americans generally are fascinated with the royal family of Great Britain. Is it not true? It's kind of strange, isn't it? That the motherland still holds such affection for many of us. We, we love the pageantry of a royal wedding. In fact, millions and millions of Americans watch the most recent one. We are addicted to the queen on Netflix. At least some of us are. <laughs> Uh, and we like movies and films and books that are about kings and kingdoms, thus the popularity of Game of Thrones. We enjoy discovering the hidden humanity of these powerful figures and the intrigue that goes on behind palace doors. Today, today in the Christian year, we celebrate the kingship of Jesus. But what kind of king is he? Our scripture this morning gives us some insight, as well as that responsive reading and the songs, these hymns of the faith that we have sung, give give us some insight into the nature of Jesus' kingship, which is very, very different from the kings of this world. The first thing that really stands out here is that Our king, King Jesus, is a lover of the least of these. There are six actions that are described here in Matthew 25 that mirror the ministry and the teaching of Jesus in the uh, the Gospels and also the accounts of the early church that we find in the book of Acts and in early church history. Uh, They were clearly the priorities of faithful discipleship from the get-go. 
from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He came to set captives free, uh, to, to feed the poor, to proclaim good news to those that were on the margins of life in his day. These six actions, which are found uh, not only in church history and in the New Testament over and over again as being uh, commanded by God of His people, they're also found in the Old Testament. These were traditions of the Jews. The first one is feeding the hungry. Jesus fed the hungry miraculously when He fed 5,000, fed 4,000 people who followed Him. Uh, I recall when our boys were very young, probably first, second grade, we, uh, we got involved with a homeless man who ultimately moved into our home for five months and became a member of our family named Kenny. I've talked about Kenny before. Uh, I've tried in recent months to find Kenny. There's just no trace of him. I don't know what has happened to him. If he were still living today, he would be well into his 70s. He was somewhere in his 40s at that time. But the boys and I took Kenny to Mr. Gaddy's for a pizza buffet. He had never seen anything like it. And he was amazed that you could pay, you know, one price and eat all the pizza you could hold. And so he gorged on pizza. And um, he also stuffed it in the pockets of his jacket, wrapped it up in napkins and took it with him so that he would have something to eat. Honestly, I think that's one of the first times I've ever come face to face with someone who was genuinely hungry, who didn't have enough to eat. I remember as a child, my dad on Christmas Eve loading us kids up in the car and we took groceries to a poor family that lived up on a mountain close to the airport in Livingston, Tennessee. Um, it was a powerful experience. It was intimidating. It caused us a little bit of anxiety uh, facing these strangers. But we knew they were very poor, uh, unlike us. Feeding the hungry has been a part of the priorities of this church for a very, very long time. And it's, it's manifested in, in our gifts to the Amen House, the canned goods that Charlie referenced with the kids, uh, the communion rail offerings, the backpack program, the angel tree. All of these efforts help to feed the hungry in our community. The second of these actions is offering drink to the thirsty. Culturally, this was an expectation in the first century, and frankly it is still today in the Middle East. Whether you're Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, in that culture the first thing you do is invite someone into your home and you offer them something to drink. It may be a cup of tea, a glass of water, or some of that really strong thick coffee that they make over in the Middle East. In Romans 12, 20, Paul picks up on this tradition when he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. No, he says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. The third act is welcoming strangers, which Jesus embodied in his interactions with marginalized people who were considered unclean, unfit, or untouchable. He ate with sinners. He welcomed a conversation with Gentiles who were considered uh, to be unclean. He took a man, uh, 
frequently took people that would, would be untouchable like lepers and he healed them. He touched their bodies and made them whole. The fourth action is giving clothing to the naked. And Jesus himself, Jesus himself um, was entirely dependent on the gifts and the support of others, primarily a group of women that had some wealth at their disposal, who supported him in his itinerant ministry. He had no home. He didn't have his own bed. And these women especially uh, clothed him, took care of him, fed him. They made it possible for him to fulfill his ministry with his disciples during those three years. Number five, taking care of the sick. Jesus did this repeatedly by curing people that had uh, deadly or terminal or life-altering diseases like leprosy. He cast out demons. And number six, he visited uh, visiting prisoners. This idea of visiting prisoners is one that has always intimidated me. How many of you are, are just a little anxious about the possibility of going to, to a jail and seeing someone? Uh, if it's someone you know, maybe less threatening. But, uh, but you know, I've, I've been a few times to jail, never as an inmate. And, and uh, those, those encounters have, have really unnerved me. Uh, because in every situation, they've always locked the door behind me. Leaving me with the person that I was visiting. And it can be a very intimidating thing to be put in those situations. One of the most intimidating that I recalled this morning was, was going to the Tennessee prison for women. It's been 25 years ago at least. And I was locked up in a conference room with all these convicted felons. They were all women. Now most of them didn't look too threatening, but there was one in particular that looked very dangerous. And she could have taken me down with one arm. And, and I, you know, I had someone ask me, do you know why she's in here? And I wasn't sure. I wanted to know why she was in there. But she was convicted of first-degree murder. And yet this woman was a part of this retreat, the Emmaus Walk, for the entire weekend. It was an amazing experience being locked up in prison with her and with those other inmates. Early Methodism understood that these six outward works of mercy that Jesus mentions here in Matthew 25 were, were living proof, are living proof for us today as well, of a faith that is genuine. John Wesley taught that doing these works of mercy was one of the ways that we prepare ourselves, that we know that we are ready for the return of Jesus and his judgment. Charles and John Wesley had a unique way of weaving the call to personal holiness, to salvation and personal holiness with social concern. The, the, the two together made a fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. And they not only helped people find the Lord, they helped people find food and jobs and health care. They saved people's souls while alleviating human suffering. And this has been woven into or stamped upon the DNA of, of Methodists since the very beginning, 250 some odd years ago. And even today you will find United Methodists have a real concern for these issues. We've, we've, we've helped found hospitals and universities and we care for the poor and the needy. 
John Wesley had a deep passion for the whole person. And he said to the people called Methodists, Give no one that asks for your help an ill word or an ill look. In other words, don't look down your nose. Don't be disapproving and judgmental of those persons. He says, do not hurt them even if you can't help them. And expect no thanks from anyone that you are able to help. In other words, he called us to love others the way Jesus loved in the gospel. Through these six actions of mercy. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. So the genesis, the seed for what Jesus says here in Matthew 25, which Charlie explained to the kids this morning, is that when we do it to the least of these, we do it to Jesus. That is the next step, one giant step forward that whatever we do in the way of, of extending mercy to people in need, we are doing it to the Lord. Jim, Jim Wallace tells the story about his ministry experience at the Sojourners Neighborhood Center in Washington, D.C., during the 1970s and 80s, when he was a young man. I was in Washington, D.C. in the 1970s, 1973 to be exact, as a congressional page. And one of the most stunning realizations for me is that just a few blocks from the Capitol and the White House, a mile or two away, were deeply impoverished neighborhoods. Lots and lots of poor people within the confines of the District of Columbia, the nation's capital. Uh, I lived in a brownstone, four-story brownstone, with a poor woman that rented out rooms in this rundown house uh, for pages like me that were serving for an extended period of time in the U.S. Congress. And, and it was a very jarring experience to be around so many poor, desperate people, homeless people, who were sleeping on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol. Well, this neighborhood center was only a mile and a half from the White House. And uh, uh, Wallace says, you know, I was just a, a young man and my mentor and friend was this older African-American woman who lived in this poor neighborhood. And she, she, her name was Mary Glover and she was a powerful Pentecostal woman of faith. Uh, she lived by Matthew 25. That was, that was her creed for her day-to-day -day living. Uh, she was not a theologian. She was not a scholar. Uh, who knows how she would have exegeted Matthew 25. It didn't matter. She just saw in these six actions a model for her in the teaching of Jesus, and she tried to live it out. And Jim Wallace said it was transformational for him as a young man who's still involved in issues of social and racial justice and helping the poor and the oppressed in our country as, as a believer, as a Christian. But he tells this story about hundreds of people would line up at this neighborhood center every Saturday morning to get a bag of groceries that would see them through the week. And some of the volunteers that helped to prepare those bags that were handed out over several hours, they called it the line. The line would stretch all the way down the street. Some of those volunteers that helped to prepare those bags were people who actually took a bag home themselves because they were so poor. 
And there was Mary Glover in the midst of them. And before they opened the doors and began to give out the food, she would join hands with all of them. And he said she would invariably pray a prayer like this. Thank you, Lord, for waking me up this morning, that the walls of my room were not the walls of my grave. Thank you, Lord, for another day to serve you. We know that you will be coming through the line today. So, Lord, help us to treat you well. Help us to treat you well. Amen. In a matter of weeks, we're going to have people lining up, coming to our church to pick up these angel tree gifts and these food bags that that we are, are providing for these needy families. And it's my prayer, regardless of what their response may be, some can't even speak English, I can guarantee that, no matter who they are, what they look like, or how they behave, that we will see them as a manifestation of Jesus Christ in our midst. And that we will say, as Mary Glover said, help us, Lord, to treat you well. To treat you well when we reach out to these needy souls that come to us. However, when we look at the plight of the needy in our world, sometimes it's overwhelming. And I think, frankly, one of the reasons why we fail to engage the poor and and to have friendships and relationships with the poor is that we don't know where to start. It it just seems too big, too great. And it's true that Jesus fed 5,000, 4,000 people, large groups of people, but he also conducted most of his ministry one-to-one with individual persons. And that, I believe, is a real key, is starting with one. When Mother Teresa started her charity, Missionaries of Charity, in in Calcutta, India, in 1950, she could not have envisioned the tens of thousands of persons her life would touch. But she always said this, I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can feed only one person at a time. So you begin with one. Begin with one. That's something you can do. That's something I can do, to begin with one. So what kind of king is Jesus? Well, he loves the least, and his people must do the same. In fact, we will be held accountable for our faithfulness or our failure when it comes to these six actions. And that's the second part of this message um, he is judge of all. In Matthew 25, 31, Jesus speaks of the second coming of Jesus. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. This, this account reveals to us in this scene here what that judgment will be like. It is a separation. Two groups. The sheep are separated from the goats. Now the imagery is one familiar to people that live in the Middle East even today. I've seen it with my own eyes. You'll see herds of goats and sheep all mixed in together. But as they come into the sheepfold at night, the sheep will go one direction and the goats another because the goats are more vulnerable to cold. And... um, They have different kinds of challenges than than sheep. But this separation is one that would have have, uh, connected with Jesus' audience. And, And here Jesus says that 
that just as the, the wheat and the tares will be separated at the coming of the Son of Man, so shall these two animals, these two flocks or herds will be separated. The sheep being the people, the faithful people of God, and the goats, those who are unfaithful, who fail to take note note of the, of the needy people that are all around them. And the meaning of this term nations, called the judge of the nations, can vary. It can sometimes be used in the New Testament to refer only to Gentiles. At other times it's obvious that the writer is talking about Gentiles and Jews as, as one group. But, but the emphasis seems to be here in Matthew's gospel scholars thing, uh, meaning all people, all people of every tongue, tribe, and nation... Everyone will be subject to this scrutiny by the king who is our judge. And the word that really jumps out at me as I study this passage this week is the word when. The word when. When. When did we see you hungry, Lord? When did we see you naked or sick? Both the saints and the sinners say the same thing. The sheep and the goats all ask when. They are surprised in this moment of judgment. But what a wonderful surprise it is for those who have been faithful. I mean, I cannot possibly recall all the good deeds that I've done for others. Surely it's not been enough. Surely I've, I've had opportunities to care for others, to, to help others, uh, to, to, to sacrifice my own comfort and my own uh, wealth uh, so that others' needs may be met. But, but Jesus does not forget any good thing you've done. But he also takes note of the neglect, the failure, the failure to do what is right. And, and the faithfulness here in showing mercy is proof that the faith is real and is obedient. So we're not saying that we're justified, we're saved by our works. We dealt with that last week. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? We are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast, but, but the goodness of your life, the works of your life, as we saw in the Bema Seat judgment in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, is the same standard for, for passing judgment on the people of God in, in the very end of all things. In fact, James chapter 2 says very clearly, listen to this now, James says very clearly that persons who say they have faith but have no compassion, that show no mercy for the needy around them are not really people of faith. He says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom? He promised to those who love him. Talking about the poor. Then in verse 13, James says, There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it in your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? And then in verse 17 he says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it, it, it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless faith. So obedience to Christ, 
Um, owning his mission and his purpose in all of its fullness is definitely a mark of an authentic believer, a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. But here's the hard word as we bring this to a close. Jesus said, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The charge here against the lost ones is that they did, it, it, it's not that they had any kind of moral failure, that they disobeyed some law. It was that they failed to do right. They failed to do good and to do nothing, to do nothing is seen as the road to condemnation, the road to final judgment. Their indifference toward the king and those he loves seals their doom here. Therefore, therefore, you cannot afford to be indifferent toward the needy. You cannot afford to be indifferent towards the Holy Spirit who, who makes us ready for every encounter of ministry with the least of these. You cannot afford to be indifferent toward King Jesus who is your righteous judge. You cannot afford to be indifferent toward the demands of discipleship which require us to trust, to believe, but also to obey what Christ has commanded of us. Billy Sunday, who preceded Billy Graham, the great evangelist of, of early in the last century, once asked, what must I do to go to hell? What must I do to go to hell? And the famous evangelist answered, absolutely nothing. If you do nothing with the claims of Christ if you do nothing with the invitation to come and follow Him, if you do nothing with regard to these six actions, you ignore the least of these, then you're pretty much assured of what will come at the final judgment. Theologian Martin Marty said this, If we really believed in hell... We wouldn't be watching basketball or even the TV preachers. We'd be out rescuing people. And the reason is we'd understand what's at stake in our world. And so we pledge our allegiance ultimately in all ways to King Jesus. Amen? He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the one we shall follow. He is the one we believe in. He is the one. He is the only one who can save us from our sins. And He is the one we shall obey. Because we want to be His fully devoted followers.